Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Eric Armstrong, and with me here today is Phil Thompson. Hi, Phil. Howdy. How you doing? I'm doing goody. Uh, it's a hoser's place for accents, eh? Um, so, Phil, uh, I think we're we're having a little spree, a little run on episodes yeah. back to back to back, and uh, today we're we're in the land of uh, consonants again, and. Yeah. We're specifically targeting a row of the pulmonic yeah, consonants chart. It's a the new thing for us. Uh, we're, instead of taking a look at a specific phoneme and, or a, a pair of voiced and unvoiced cognates of the phoneme, we're going to take a look at the whole concept of the fricative and take a look at all the various fricatives that exist in spoken language. Nice, nicely put. Um, so, remind us again, fricative, what is it? Fricative is, as I think in one of our recent episodes, I, I had to search down the etymology of Africa, and it was ad fricare, when basically the Latin word, and we know this in friction, uh, is to rub. And so it's the sound of things rubbing together. Really, though, we're not actually making cricket noises with our mouths. We're not rubbing bits together. We're sending air past or through a, a constriction in the vocal tract. And that compression, that little aperture through which the air flows, causes cavity resonance, the sort of resonance that you get when you hear the wind blowing past your window or through a little crack or when the steam comes out of the teapot, uh, that sound of friction uh, is made in various places in the mouth, and those differences in placement make a big difference in terms of the, the sound of it we hear. In fact, every single box on our row here is filled, and that's not true of all the other consonants, uh, non-pulmonic consonants. Uh, Pulmonic, not non-pulmonic. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> every single fricative sound is useful in making a distinction in some language. Yes. So uh, it seems like we are able to discern more subtle differences in the world of fricatives and that the placement of the of this particular manner of making a consonant sound makes enough of a distinction from place to place to place that we can hear the subtle shift of the overtone, the, the contour, if you will, of the, the sound, the complex sound, really, that's being made. In a way, the, the fricative noise of it is a little bit like a white noise pattern. If you yeah. think of the white noise on your television, that that broad spectrum. And the, the thing about white noise is, is it's really the full spectrum of noise coming in a very random way. And re we really do mean random here. It's not just arbitrary. Uh, it's uh, totally unpredictable. And that broad spectrum 
is kind of focused into bands of concentration that gives a higher or lower pitch contour to different fricatives. And we can identify these different pitch contours and track which uh, place in our mouths those uh, f- different foci, uh, foci, foci, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, are, are located. And so when we differentiate a s from a sh, that... So you mean the loci of the foci? Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, that shift allows us to uh, differentiate the one sound from another. Yeah, I, I think it's really, we could pick this apart another layer, and I think it's important because I do think sometimes students get confused. Uh, there is a change in the resonance. There is a change in the apparent pitch, I guess, is one way we could say it. But fundamentally, the sound that's being filtered there is a noise sound. It's chaotic, non-periodic. It's not sonorant. Hmm. If it turned into a whistle, which you gave the example of the tea kettle boiling, then it becomes sonorant, doesn't it, in a way? Sometimes people have an issue with that. Gophers usually uh, struggle with it. Anybody with small children, yeah. they just got that reference. Yes, they did. Um, so we we want to avoid whistle, uh, which happens when the airstream goes over the edge of the hard surface of your teeth generally, a little bit too directly, so we get a kind of a 90-degree angle. So uh, what we're working with is noisy friction, but the change in the shape and the location of that constriction changes the sound of that noise a little bit, enough that we can recognize it. Yes. You know, one of the great consonant exercises that I learned, I think, from... Ooh. You are looking at your bookshelf. <laughs> it, it's not uh, latifoged. I can't remember who it is. But one of the, one of the great uh, sort of phonetic, intro to phonetics kind of uh, courses, which is very experiential, um, has you... Sorry? Is it Catford? Yeah, I think it is Catford. I think it's Catford. And uh, they they have you inhaling on consonant shapes. And uh, the the neat thing about the fricatives is that they're they don't you can feel on the inhale, but the sound is completely different if you try to inhale the fricative, because really uh, a big part of of the sound the acoustic nature of each fricative is that release space beyond your lips and that the sort of spray pattern, if you will, yeah. makes a big part of it. And if you suck in a friction, the, the, the shape of the inside of your mouth is so different and so that spray pattern will work completely differently. Yeah. So we've talked about the non, uh, I keep saying non-pulmonic, uh, the pulmonic chart before. And, and so Our listeners should be aware that by pulmonic, we mean airflow from the lungs. Uh, They're probably familiar with the chart. We've looked at it and pointed at it before. Uh, And what we're talking about now is an entire row on that chart. And what that means is that they're all the same manner of articulation, fricative. And they're arranged on this row from places of articulation at the front of the mouth to places of articulation all the way to the back of the vocal tract. Yes. 
So we'll follow that pattern. And I think people might like to follow along on their song sheets. So if you have an IPA chart, go get it now. Hit pause. We'll wait. Uh, And if you don't have one handy, of course, you can search it on Google. We're going to look at the IPA chart that's on the Wikipedia page, which is actually not the official, uh, you know, sanctioned one from the International Phonetic Association. And it does things a little bit differently. The fricative row on the Wikipedia page is the third row down, whereas on the official IPA chart, it is the fifth row. Um, And I think that one reason that they've done this is to order the fricatives right next to the approximants. Right. Uh, let's take a brief moment to remind people about approximants because that question of noise and sonorance really is at the heart of the difference between fricative and approximate. There's an articulatory difference, of course. So an approximate is similar in mouth shape, if you will, to the fricative, but the space between the articulator and the place it's articulating against, say, the alveolar ridge, for instance, the tongue space, the space between the tongue and that spot is a little bit more open. And so we're not in the realm of fricative anymore because there's no longer a turbulence being made, so we're not getting that noise. So this happens on voicing only. If one was voiceless, this is just at the point where it stops to make friction. So if you try to do it voicelessly, it would just turn into air. Is that right, Phil? Yeah, that's that's perfectly said, that uh, we're introducing an element of turbulence when we're doing a fricative. And when we move out of the zone of turbulence into uh, a zone of shaping the space, There's no difference in the sound of shaped air, but there is a difference in the sound of shaped vibration. Right. And if we open further, we get into the territory of vowels. So sometimes approximates are called semi-vowels by some people. Yeah, exactly right. And we could imagine a chart which had the fricatives, then below that the approximants, and then below that the corresponding vowels that would be shaped like those consonant articulations. Right. So should we should we get on the road? Let, let's hit the road. So if we start at the very front of the vocal tract, the first element is your two lips. So we have the bilabial fricatives to begin with. And uh, bilabial means both lips, uh, which may seem like a redundancy, but later we'll get to lip to tooth, and so we're explaining why why it's not just a labial sound. It's both lips working off of each other. Right. And some people will argue that a bilabial, really, there's one moving lip and one static lip. I've certainly seen that argued in some phonetic texts, that because the upper lip, particularly for some people, uh, it, you know, the stiff upper lip, uh, that upper lips tend to move less and lower lips tend to be mm-hmm. move more, particularly because the lower lip is kind of attached to the jaw mandible so that it can be brought closer to the upper lip a little bit more. Uh, for some people, certainly, bilabials seem to be brought together by the lower lip coming together. But 
one can make sort of a kiss-like action, a yeah. rounding to do a bilabial fricative, and one can also just do a sort of slit-like bilabial fricative. Yeah, it's, uh, it might be useful to take a trip back into the anatomy, that your mouth is circled by a ring of muscle, uh, the orbicularis oris, uh, that can do all these interesting shapes. Uh, you can simply bring your lips together and partly, partly that's simply by contracting that muscle on the inner surfaces, that, that is to say the parts closest to your lips, they compress and, they, and the, the purse, and this is an old-fashioned purse, uh, netsuke uh, with a string in it, uh, the purse closes, and, and this we could call pursing your lips. Uh, this is the way Dudley Knight describes it. Uh, the other action, though, is protruding your lips. And that happens because you compress the muscle fibers at the outside ring, and that squishes the lips forward. So between those two actions, you can either squish the, the red part of your lips forward, or you can bring the red part of your lips together. You can either protrude or purse your lips, or you can do both simultaneously. Right, and then there are lip actions that you can do with less orbicularis oris and more with things like buccinator, which is the bugler muscles at the sides of your lip that pull the sides of your lips towards your ears, and you could sort of narrow your lips by sort of widening them and bring them together. So you, you end up with sort of a... Uh, I think I heard Dudley call it that psych psychotic smile. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and if... uh, yes, the... Uh, oh, it's completely gone out of my head. Uh, but it's not quite psychotic smile. I'm, he's going to listen to this, and I can hear him rolling his eyes that I'm forgetting it right now. <laughs> uh, and it's drowning out my thoughts. Dudley, stop, stop. Uh, I want to make an adjustment on the anatomy here. that The, uh, the buccinator muscles although they attach back at the, I think at the coronoid process of the mandible, or maybe back to the ramus of the mandible. But because they attach not directly at the angle or corner of the lips, but a little higher and a little lower, they're more parallel. Uh, they tend to sort of compress the lips, but they don't do the same lip corners directly back that the rosorius does. That's a more straight line back. Uh, and so... It's the counteraction between the orbicularosaurus and the buccinators that because they're fighting against each other and not succeeding, and because the buccinator is spread over a wider surface, you get more compression and thickening of the sides of the mouth of the cheeks to do, as you said, this bugling, or we do it probably all the time when we're chewing. By, uh, we get a little bit of food over on that side and we squish it back towards the teeth by tightening the cheeks. Uh, and so when it comes back to making bilabial sounds, that means that we have a couple of surfaces that we could be bringing together. We could be narrowing our lip hole <laughs> towards the center. Uh, yes. We could be squishing our lips out so more of the insides of the lips are touching. Uh, we could be keeping our lip corners back so our mouth is really spread, but nonetheless bringing the lips closed together so we make, as you said, a, a slit. 
Mm. You know, some, sometimes I think that uh, the way people sort of figure out how to make their lips come together to make these kinds of noises has to do partly with their bite, their dentition, how their teeth are aligned. That for some people, their their upper teeth are, uh, you know, they might have an overbite or an underbite. And so they are going to have to negotiate what lip does what, what muscle does what, in order to find the most efficient, effective way of bringing those lips into approximation so that they can get that noise. Um, and so there can't be one rule that that uh, rings them all uh it's uh it's going to be dependent on a lot of factors on how people choose to do this and it's um, also true that these muscles are working against each other that, and so it's a very complex piece of articulation and everybody's got their own strategy right and ultimately i don't think it really matters what part of your lip comes together to make this approximation it it only has to happen so that some friction happens near your lips. Uh, and so there's, there's really no right way or wrong way to do it. And uh, we also have to remember that there's different lip anatomy, right? There are people with large, full lips. There are people with slender, delicate lips. Um, so you, you don't necessarily have uh, uh, everybody coming at this from the same point of view. I had an experience of this uh, not too very long ago. I had been struggling, I, I'd been making my bilabial fricatives with uh, no lip corner advancement at all, just in a big slit. Ah, it's a mirthless grin, that's what Dudley calls it. <laughs> uh, and he demonstrates it really beautifully. With a lot of mirth, I have Exactly. To say. Uh, and there is psychosis in the eyes, that is absolutely true. Uh, so I had been doing it in a very thin way, engaging my rosorius even to pull my lip corners back, uh, really sort of matching my lips to my teeth and then bringing my teeth together. I was overworking it a great deal. And it is a phoneme that exists in Japanese, as I think we've mentioned before. And I had a Japanese student, and she made the sound, and she was compressing her lips pretty far, but she was definitely... Uh, protruding them as well, making a little round circle in the middle and ha having contact of the sides of the mouth so only the middle puckered out. Mm. And it was quite different than the way I was doing it. So, Phil, will you model the sound for us? Yeah. So if we do an unvoiced bilabial fricative, I will bring my lips together. Maybe I'll bring the insides. Maybe I'll bring the uh, edges of my lips together. Uh, but all I need to do, as you've said, is to make turbulence as the air goes out. Fa, ah, fa, ah. And I'm trying not to blow directly into the microphone there. So you'll notice that he's doing the standard model of starting with uh, initial, fa, and then intervocalic, ah, fa, and then a final, ah. So we get three possible places where that could happen. And it sounds, I imagine, to our listeners, depending on our recording quality here, not all that different than fa, a fa, af. It may and that the only difference between those two articulations is how comfortable I am doing them. <laughs> Since I use fa all the time, and I very rarely use fa. I do think there is an acoustic difference. Yes. 
And what what tends to be the difference is uh, not so much the the actual contour of that fricative, but how it blends into the following vowel or the preceding vowel or the vowels around it, depending on context. Um, and that that transition is ultimately what catches our ears in a way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's... Will you yeah. do the voiced one now? Yes, indeed. Va, ava, av. <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. Va, ava, av. I'm finding that I'm, for some reason today, approaching closer to a weakly articulated plosive. I'm not getting quite the buzz that I'm accustomed to getting. Mm. So, um, these, uh, the symbols for them, the first symbol is, I believe we call it a yota, is that right? Am I remembering correctly? Uh, Speaking totally by memory. uh, You're talking about the uh, symbol for the unvoiced bilateral. That's right. Person. Yeah. Isn't that a fee? A phi? Is it a fee? A phi? Fo fum? It is a. It is a circle with a line through it. Yes, you're right. It is. I'm sure it is. Uh, it's sort of an eggy circle, with on this chart what looks like an L straight through it because it has a left pointing serif in the top and serifs pointing both ways on the bottom which makes it very pretty indeed. I think that sort of monoserif on the top is a feature of the font Gentium. Yes. And that any other font would have uh, the double serif that you'd expect, sort of like in a capital I. Yeah, it's much more stable, and <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'm, I'd look in my Greek dictionary to see how they write it, but it's now supporting my microphone. It's a microphone stand, so I, I won't be checking that. Okay. Um, I'm just pulling up a, a different version. Yes, it is a phi. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to go to talk about... Are there? Any, I, we know Japanese. Are there any particular realizations where it's going to be applied to. So you might hear it on what would be an F for us yeah. or a V. I have heard the this uh, voiceless version of the bilabial fricative uh, used for the um, the symbol is the turned W. Um, I'm trying to remember what the it's the what's the Voiceless, labialized, velar approximant. So it's the co-articulation, the hua sound. That, uh, oh, I see. I see where we are. So yes, that instead of using fa, instead of using so saying a word like what, they would say fat, fat. Who are these people? Japanese people. Ah, I see. <laughs> yes. So that uh, because it's bilabial, they see people saying what they don't realize that there is a velar component. And so they just do the bilabial fricative. Um, the oddest pronunciation was applying that sound to the word who, uh, which isn't a sort of W-like consonant, the kind of error that we frequently get with people who are trying to learn to apply the, uh, the labialized velar approximant 
when they normally would just say a W sound. So they're trying to learn to say what, and they say, who are you? Um, so this person was saying, who, um, because she was applying that rule in the wrong place. This all sounds very familiar, which makes me think we might have talked about it on our wah, wah We probably did. We probably did. So let's move on. Excellent. Um, and so, any other places where you've encountered this? I haven't, although I always rely on Wikipedia to give me a list of occurrences uh, of uh, the voiceless bilabial fricative. So I'm going to take, oh, good heavens. Uh, it's in well, lots of places. Yeah, although I knew that's near Japan. Uh Angor, I have no idea. Uh, Is that where sweaters grow? Uh, apparently. Uh, you see, the language spelled E-W-E. Ewe? Yes, although, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, in my That's mind, all. you do. Okay, good. Uh, wow. Itelmen. Kaingang. I know none of these languages. Maori. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, in a great word, fakapapa. Fakapapa. Uh, and that sounds like incest. Say again? That sounds like incest. It's genealogy. Genealogy, which is sort of incest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and in Andalusian Spanish, uh, instead of los viejos, we have lo Viejo. Uh, yeah, interesting, interesting, interesting. And in Turkmen as well. So, we can say that it is not very common in terms of the number of speakers speaking it, except for Japanese. Uh, but it's in a handful of languages. Cool. Uh, it's one of those, because I've been offering up my students an attempt to do the sound even if there isn't an IPA symbol for it, uh, they, they often will try it and say, well, that's just nobody, no language would ever do that. It's too weird. But in fact, it's used, used effectively by quite a few languages. You know, it looks like maybe 10. Right. Now, we didn't give the symbol name or shape for the voiced bilabial fricative. Yes. And which is a modified beta. Exactly. Um, I used to think of it as an S-set, and that's not right, because it's not sort of italicized. It, it looks like a B, uh, with a more roundy top and with a tail pointing below the line. Right. Um, now, from not being a Spanish speaker... Uh, the bilabial fricative is, uh, right? We talked about this in terms of abogado. Uh, yeah, although I think it's seen as a... Uh, An allophone? A, yeah, exactly, a dialect variation. Uh, right. If I remember correctly, uh, sort of official Spanish phonology says that all the sounds are really b sounds. Oh, okay. And that people say la vaca, not la vaca. But you can imagine it being an allophonic variation of B. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's in Russian, uh, like Zdrazvoitje. Uh, it's in an old-fashioned form of Cockney. Uh, windows, Vittles, 
and again, it seems to be in several of the languages that had the unvoiced version as well, which makes some interesting sense about how the sounds, how the oral posture is organized. You might easily imagine that a speaker whose mouth is capable of doing an unvoiced could easily add voicing to it, and uh, it would be a a shame to miss that opportunity to add a phoneme to your language. Okay, let's get moving. So we're now moving into the zone. I think of it as the sort of the English zone. Yes, exactly. Because the next eight symbols should be very familiar to English speakers because they are sounds that we all have in all our speech. Well, the symbols shouldn't be familiar. The sounds should be familiar to us. If you know your IPA, then the symbols will be familiar too. And several of the symbols are exactly what an uninitiated, uninitiated phonetics student would expect. Sure. So, labiodental. Fava. Anything more we need to say? <laughs> Labio, lower lip, dental, upper teeth. Yes. Uh, so, uh, the when we put pairs together, the 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 first wor- part of the word is always the bottom of the structure, and the top part is the what it articulates against. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I always think of it as the the thing moving and the thing towards which it moves. Uh, just like with the description of a muscle, you describe it from origin to attachment. Right. So, in some of the ones that will come across in the future, there's sort of an assumption that lingua goes in front of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just so common that we don't say anything about it. But this is describing the lip and the tooth. Lip and the tooth. And it is possible, and I I think we mentioned it in our fava episode, to have a dentilabial articulation for people with an underbite. Yes. Fava. And there is an extended... IPA symbol for marking that. Uh, The other thing about this that is sort of unspoken is that it's most likely uh, endolabial, that is to say, the inside of the lip. Uh, Like Leontes says, kissing with inside lip. Hmm. Uh, And it's one of those funny things about speech teaching that people, students, often want to do this very exolabial, outside of the lip, look at me biting my lip, bah. Uh, yes. But then they don't really do that in their own speech. They just bring the inside of the lip against the front rib edge of the teeth, and that serves very well. Yes. Or surfs very well. Next. Okay, so next step, we're moving out of the labial zone. Yeah. We're moving away from our teeth. What do they call the coronal zone? What What does that mean? Cor- coronal? I've never heard it pronounced, and I always said it coronal in my head. You're thinking too much of the beer. (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, That's what my wife just said to me, that I'm thinking too much of beer. Uh, So dental, and as you said, these are linguodental, and coronal sounds are those sounds made with the frontish, flexible part of the tongue. And uh, the... I would say they're even, we could be further persnickety and say that these are apicodental, that the apex or tip of the tongue is making contact with that edge of the teeth. Although, 
people do laminodental. I suppose you could do dorsodental, where the whole middle of your tongue is making that contact. And I suppose it's worth saying that in all of these, when we're describing the place of articulation, with the notable exception of retroflex, we're talking about where the rubber meets the road, where the where the sound is being produced. And so in this case, an unvoiced apicodental fricative would be tha, atha, ath. I just looked it up. Yes. Number one pronunciation by John Wells is coronal. Number two is coronal. Yeah. In in uh, American, on the other side of the two vertical strokes, coronal, and number two is coronal, and number three is coronal. So we're both right. Uh, good. You, he is as he is English. You know, he's English. Can't trust really anything he says about how to pronounce things. <laughs> 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 All right, lovely. So we have, and I'm Canadian. So what do I know? Right? You, you're a a neutral party, you should be able to arbitrate betwixt us twain. So we have uh, the unvoiced, uh, I've been saying apicodental, but we could just say dental uh, fricative, and then the voiced. Uh, would you demonstrate a voiced dental fricative for us? The, the, uh, Terrific. So those are common. We've been over them before. Uh, their symbols are the theta and the ev. Uh, the the ev is... They're, they're actually both ascenders. They go above the middle line, but they don't go yes. below the middle line. I do think it's important when we teach us to remind people that it's as tall as a capital, uh, as a capital letter, yes. uh, particularly the theta, because uh, of the similarity to the bardo. Exactly right. Uh, um, it's also, also some people like to put a little wiggly line in the middle of it, which is unnecessary if pretty. Sort of like a tilde. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where that comes from, but I, I've certainly seen it before. Um, now, I always like to tell people that it looks like the shape of the mouth. That um, you're you've got your lips open and your tongue right in the middle between your upper and lower teeth. I tend to draw in little teeth, vertical lines between, to give this sort of looks like a grill. Uh, I'm sure that makes a ton of sense. But it's, giving, it's good for a laugh. That's what's important when you're teaching, right? <laughs> uh, um, and the other thing with the the th symbol, because that is kind of a weird-looking one, yeah. I think, for most of us. Uh, I, I say it's sort of a, a mirror image of the number six with a sort of diagonal bar, almost like an X. Um, and uh, if I, I say sixth, uh, that uh, ah. at least reminds them of the, that it's not quite sixth because it's sixth. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, that's, that's good. And getting them to say, uh, to call it ev, they get the sound of it in. Yeah, I find that it. really drives it home. To say the name of this letter is Ev. Um, yes. All right. Enough said. So, enough said. Moving into alveolar, uh, the alveolar fricatives, the voiceless and voiced. Um, 
Now, this is the start of the zone that we call the sibilant zone. And uh, And I I will say that the Wikipedia page on fricative consonants does separate sibilant from non-sibilant fricatives. And I think that that's an interesting distinction and one that does make sense. So... So Sybil, she's the one with multiple personalities, right? So, <laughs> All right, keep carry it home, take so, it across uh, the goal uh, line, and and uh, I, I don't know, I, I don't know any more than that. Sibilant <laughs> is hissy, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and Sybil used to have a lot of hissy fits. Okay. Uh, when she was, I'm really stretching here, <laughs> desperate, desperate to get more milk it for as much as I can. So uh, yeah, sibilant yes. is it is whistling. And I think that we did talk about this a little bit on this show. Uh, in a way, sibilance is the quality of essishness. Yes. Uh, and so it always strikes me as slightly redundant when people say he's got a very sibilant S. But yes. if we see sibilance as the quality of uh, hissing, then some S's are more hissy than others. Yes. Uh, uh, so there's hyper-hissy, yeah. hyper-sibilant, and hypo-sibilant, not, not sibilant enough or lower than our expectation. Yeah. So when we, when we hear a sort of Sean Connery S, that's a hypo-sibilant because it's moving into the sh area it's and a very hissy sort of towards the teeth, dentalized in a way. And what you've just described is really the, the major way in which we adjust the degree of hissiness by changing the place of articulation either forward for more hissy or backwards for less hissy. But there are other things, aren't there, that we can do to change the quality of sibilance? Sure. And I don't think we should spend too much time on this, that uh, we go into great depth in our SZ episode. But we can dial down the air pressure, the sort of the pulmonic force driving the S. That'll tune down the S. We can widen the the central uh, groove down the tongue. That can uh, open the space up, and that'll reduce the flow. Uh, and so that'll reduce the hissiness of it. Uh, we can adjust the angle of uh, attack so that it's directing the stream more towards a soft gummy s- tissue rather than a hard, dental, toothy uh, bit, and that shift will adjust the pitch. The other thing that sometimes has to happen is uh, an adjustment uh, to make sure that it is down the center, or if someone has a big gap between their two front teeth, they may actually be helped by moving that central stream slightly off to the side so it doesn't hit the space between the two teeth, which can lead to that edge whistle sound. So um, really, dentition, your your arrangement of your teeth in your mouth, can have a very strong impact on these sibilant sounds. So uh, people who are undergoing major dental or, or orthodont, orthodontic work probably will find that their S's are in transition. And because people coaching young actors frequently encounter braces and retainers, permanent retainers. Or if they're doing a vampire movie, they might have false teeth. Sure. 
or a, a gum chewer who constantly sticks gum on the roof of their mouth. You know, there's all sorts of weird things that people do that lead to S issues. So, yes, we've, we've talked about that extensively in another episode. So we've got the unvoiced version, which surprisingly is transcribed with an S. And the, and the voice? voice version, which, wonder of wonders, is transcribed with a Z. Or a Z if you're in a yeah. British or Canadian I'll leave that to territory. So uh, that's terrific. Let's move past those to the post-alveolar fricatives. Yes, yeah, we should. Absolutely. So the unvoiced one, as we've just demonstrated, is sh, asha, ash. Why are we whispering? I don't know. Oh, sh. Uh, yeah. And the voiced one, ja, aja, aj. It feels like we've gone over these a lot recently because we've just done an Africans episode. So, yes, um, and we did these sounds separately as well. So, I guess the only thing left to say about them is their symbols. Sure, esh is this stretched out long s. Uh, it's got the height of an f and the depth of a j. So, if you took the upstroke of an f and you attached a j tail to it you would get an esh, uh, and a zh, the ej symbol, looks sort of like a long three that goes below the bass line, uh, or perhaps a z slash z that has a curly tail uh, down between its legs. Um, a uh, you know, dog who sticks his tail between his legs, the tail often looks <laughs> a bit like that. Um, By the way, this is really an odd footnote. My parents were just telling me they had gone to a a doctor, and their doctor, uh, they they didn't know what language her, was her first language, but they said she was Indian, and uh, they said that she spoke her sh sounds with the f, so she used a labiodental fricative instead of a postalveolar fricative. Hmm. So, push would be poof. It, it struck me as very odd, and. Maybe they're not the most reliable reporters of these things, but yes. I tried to convince them that they should come up with some illness to go back to her with a recorder. I don't know if they're going to follow through on that. I've got shingles. <laughs> exactly. Fingles? Exactly. Uh, all right, terrific. So now we can move into the retroflex fricatives. And at this point, even though we're still coronal, we are out of the territory that we've discussed before, Yeah. Hmm. Yes, because retroflexion is a different kind of tongue action, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't describe place at all in the name of it. No, it doesn't. Um, and it really is, it's a, a kind of a whole new world of tongue action. Though, typically, we're, we're dealing with a tongue action that is related to the hard palate. Um, yeah, and probably pretty close to the alveolar zone. Right, but we, if we say a post-alveolar consonant, we're, we don't use the term post-post-alveolar, and we've got to save palatal for a different articulation. This is the last stop on the coronal train, uh, backer from which thou canst not go, uh, and so what's described in the word is the the motion of the tongue, retro. Bending back, yeah, exactly. right? Flexing. Now, if we think about the coronal 
consonants, the front edge of the tongue is rising up. So the dental, the front edge is extending perhaps to the edge of the upper front teeth or perhaps even beyond it in some languages. The alveolar curling a little bit up to the alveolar ridge, palato-alveolar curling almost to the vertical. Right? When we go to retroflex, it's like we go over the top and we flip it over and the underside of the tongue starts to be the surface that is approximating oh, I, with I the roof of the mouth. say that that is in the realm of allophonic variation. That with all it's described is retroflexion and where that sound gets made, a sound could be made with a sublaminal contact, that is to say, yes. underneath the front of the tongue or the tip of the tongue. It could be apical, and I suppose I'm trying to <laughs> get my tongue to do a laminal retroflex. Theoretically possible, but painful. Laminal retroflex. I don't really understand how you could do that. I think what I'm doing is I'm bracing the sides of my tongue so that the only thing sticking up I'm feeling some airflow over the top of my tongue, and I think I'm bending the thing back. But uh, without an MRI, perhaps we'll never know. Uh, but that's certainly, that's just in my, the realm of my imagination, not in the realm of what languages actually do. And I, my belief is that the people who actually use retroflex consonants in their everyday speech make fairly significant bending back, that they actually retroflex significantly, so that there's a radical sound difference between sh and sh, so that there's no confusion between the retroflex voiceless uh, fricative and the palato-alveolar, and that, um, that they're, not, uh, they're not dancing around. They're yeah. not because taking that it be lightly. A short... Vigorously getting in there. Yeah, if you have... Uh... A post-alveolar fricative, you have an investment in making your retroflex fricative significantly different and making it so that the underside of the tongue is doing the fricatizing is going to help make it different. But I also think, as you said before, that it's the transition out of a sound into a vowel that that's where we hear the distinctions between some of these sounds yes. in the transition space. So and with a greater bending back, that transition is going to be slower uh, and yes. uh, more contrasted. And it will have more. The vowel will be more colored by the tortuous position of your tongue. Now, learning how to make an, a retroflex symbol in the IPA is actually fairly easy. Yeah. That all of them share a characteristic tail. Um, and so the tail dangles down and then hooks to the right. Yeah. Um, so it's the opposite of the J action. That's right. uh, that hooking is uh, going to the right. And it doesn't, like, the, the J goes down a bit before it. All, all the palatals have that little bend down. And I, I guess the retroflex approximate goes down a little bit before it bends back. But if I look on the chart... The no, actually, I think those hooks on the gentium font are all pretty long, and it's only on the Wikipedia page where the hook on the retroflex 
fricative is kind of short. So that seems... Yes, it's it's actually just a little bit more delicate that the vertical stroke is just a little skinnier, I mm. think, on on the S and Z. So that it, perhaps the the retroflex fricatives, just the tail looks shorter because the base of those characters is... Uh, I think they're just like... There's sort of an upswing of a, a serif. I just think there's enough sense typographic that. variation that maybe there's no information contained in those differences. I don't think Although I is. think Gentium is awful pretty. I, I agree. <laughs> Sho and Zhou, uh, those are the retroflex sounds. Yeah, would you model them in their various contexts? Sir, sure. Sure. <laughs> Sha, Asha, Ash. Unvoiced. Ja, Aja, Aj. Unvoiced. Terrific. And uh, I have the page, the Wikipedia page open here, uh, and... There are many languages it occurs in that I don't know. Uh, it does occur in Chinese, in Norwegian, in Polish and Russian, Sicilian, interesting, uh, Slovak, Swedish, Vietnamese. So quite a few languages do use it. Uh, and that is the... Uh, voiceless one, and I'll just double check what sorry <laughs> there the voiced one uh, the occurrence it actually seems to occur less frequently, although it it's still in Chinese polish Russian uh, so as we said before, oftentimes people languages use both a voiced and unvoiced form of something since their tongue is already comfortable going to that position. So if we go one step further back on our chart, we're reaching a really major division of uh, how the articulations work from this coronal. And I'm so glad to not have to say coronal anymore as we move into the dorsal region. Uh, and why is it that it's called dorsal, he said, wonderingly. Dorsal. Uh, so dorsum of the tongue is the back of the tongue. Uh, and uh, so we we are no longer moving the front edge of the tongue. We're moving the part of the body of the tongue that lies directly underneath the structure against which we are articulating. I always like to say to my so, students that, that a dolphin has a dorsal fin. And that shape of the arcing body of the dolphin helps them, I think, to realize what part we're talking about. Nice. Yes, um, you were saying that it lies directly below the palate, palate essentially. Yeah. Um, the... the I, I often find for palatal, the yod is a helpful reference point. So getting people to start by going, ya, 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 and feel the action of the tongue, I can feel, oh, okay, it's sort of the middle of the tongue going straight up towards my hard palate. Yeah, so if that's the approximant, then if I uh, add a little bit more action and, and I get into that fricative place, ya, ya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not far off in sound from 
the palato-alveolar sound, zha-zha, zha-zha, it's just made with the front edge of the tongue behind the lower front teeth. And um, for many people, I think it would sound like an, uh, uh, an allophone for that ej sound, zha. When, when you say that the tip of the tongue is behind the lower front teeth, in a way, you're just saying that it's parked there. It's not participating in this action. It doesn't have to. Indeed. In fact, I, I often use that as a sort of a, an anchor that I, I feel the sensation of the front edge of my teeth next to my lower front teeth as a way of saying, stop moving. Uh, because the front edge of my tongue is so mobile. It's so eager to get uh, involved in helping out with articulation. If I say, you know, just latch on to the front edge of the, uh, the backside of my teeth, that it, it's as if it can sort of figuratively glue itself to the back of my teeth and so that I will be more likely to use other parts of my tongue. Yeah. Um, so as a, as a teaching method, that's a really useful thing to say to students. Take that out of the equation so that you can move another part. But it would be potentially confusing if they thought that they were to be making some sort of sound with that part. Yes, yes. And there is, a, a I think, a possible... Mm, confusion, that if one locks one's tongue onto the teeth in some way, then you start to articulate with your jaw rather than with your tongue. And so I often say, oh, you know, put your fingers on your chin or on your jaw so that you have some some sort of uh, tactile feedback that you don't need to do, move your jaw to make these sounds and that your tongue can do the articulation for in you. In this way, we're diverging a little bit from the way phoneticians think about and talk about articulation into the way we as speech teachers think and talk about articulation because we're in favor of nice, big, open, relaxed oral cavities for reasons of intelligibility and and vocal resonance. So we might be inclined to join with phoneticians to say, these sounds are made with a more open jaw, and these are made with a more closed jaw. But, in fact, only some of these sounds are really required to have a closed jaw, and uh, we've actually passed by those. And those are those coronal ones, like s and sh. These, to get back onto the topic, are really made potentially with a very open jaw, and with the dorsum of the tongue rising straight up into the palate. Yes. So where would we encounter these sounds? That um, is a question for Wikipedia. Well, I, I have a question for you, Phil. Would you... Sometimes it is argued that this palatal sound is used for the words like human humane, uh, yes, yeah. uh, huge. I'm prepared to argue that. Um, Do you have a counter-argument? Um, well, some people will say that uh, H going into U uh, is very similar to h- h- human, uh, right. that one could make a, a less, mm, less fricative-y, I don't know if there's a word for that, uh, that Patience. goes gets out of this sound and into a y- right. So the, you go through a yawed transition. The question point. is whether it's uh, a cluster of 
uh, or a sequence of consonants, whether it's a single articulation. Uh, right. And we know what J.C. Wells thinks uh, <laughs> because uh, he will describe this as a cluster and, in fact, a glide cluster with, that is to say, and we'll get to it later, I hope, the glottal fricative H, uh, followed by a Y. As we've already said in this episode, it's the transition into a vowel that we often hear some of these consonants in. And so there's always going to be a territory moving from an unvoiced uh, palatal fricative into a voiced, necessarily, vowel, yeah, where there's still a little bit of yishness that is voicing happening as we move away from this very, very close articulation of the sh into the open articulation of the vowel. So my argument is that when I say human, I'm making a sh sound. That segment is an unvoiced palatal fricative. And there is some transition space in there where I'm making something that's very similar to a voiced palatal approximant, yeah, but I don't need to necessarily transcribe that unless I really linger there. And so I think the sequence H, yeah, um, misunderstands the articulation. And I think that it's sort of uh, two ways of looking at the same action. One sort of a phonemic one and one more of a phonetic one. The phonetic one would use the palatal fricative, the voiceless palatal fricative going into oo, probably hu, and the phonemic would use the h yod. In case that h is really standing for voicelessness. It is, because h, remember, is the voiceless version of the thing that follows it. Uh, and a voiceless version of yod is nothing, yeah. right? There's an empty space on the, the phonetic chart. Not that we can't make a sound there, but it, it is kind of hard to make a sound there because if it really is... There we go. Yeah, that your, your yod, if it's really an approximate, shouldn't be making any friction. Um, so we're probably starting in a fricative place and then slowly dropping... Not, not so slowly, rapidly transitioning through an approximate on our way to a vowel. So let um, me bring us back to the chart. The, this is a fascinating area of discussion, and uh, we'll keep on transecting it, I think. Uh, but the two symbols in this box uh, for the unvoiced and the voiced palatal fricative are a C with a little hook underneath it. What we call a sedilla. Yeah. Yeah. And the curly-tailed J, uh, which my students really want to use everywhere because they just are in love with it. But it's a pretty rare one. I, I think it, it could happen in English uh, if you were really enthusiastic and said, y yes. 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 So it's an allophonic variation. Right? Pardon? It it's one that thing from I'll have one one of what she's having that uh, yes, when Harry met Sally. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So certainly that could occur as an allophonic variation in English, but the the phoneme in English is the approximant, not the fricative. Uh, if I look on the Wikipedia page, uh, 
it's listed as a phoneme in Spanish, uh, in Swedish, in Hungarian, in Greek, in Irish, in Dutch. So fairly common in some widely spoken languages. So in, in like a Spanish accent, we often hear people saying, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, no, in Argentine Spanish, they take the Egge and make it actually into a post alveolar. So instead of calle, they say calle. Uh, okay. Or cache, actually. Cache. So that's shifted even further. So these two sounds, we could say that the unvoiced form happens in English all the darn time. Whenever we have this unvoiced y sequence, uh, and others would say, as you've mentioned, that that's a sequence of H plus yod. And then the curly-tailed J, the y, uh, doesn't occur in English unless you're talking about some interesting pronunciation. Anything else we need to say about those two? I think not. Right, so excellent. let's move on to the velar, um, not approximants, the fricatives. Yeah. Uh, yes, we've been talking about approximants. That's what's gotten us off. So the, there's an unvoiced and a voiced one. The placement in the palatal ones, and, and I think we were clear about this, but I'll repeat it anyway. You're really getting the whole tongue jammed up into the dome of the palate there. And Well, not the whole tongue, right? Because yeah, the front of your tongue still stays where it... <laughs> yeah, but you're getting some meat up there. Yes, you are. It seems like a almost like a a longer area where there's a narrowing. And maybe that has some, in, that, that might indicate how much effort it takes me to do the sound. But I do think that it's common in people who use those palatal sounds to really get a lot of contact up there. Yes. And there is, in a sense, less contact in the velar uh, fricative because the back or middle back of the tongue is contacting really the back of the palate, the, the velum. So the unvoiced form is ha, acha, ach. And the voiced form, ra, aha, ach. That was slightly uvular, I think, that last one. Now, would you say that your students get this one pretty quickly, or...? Sure. Um, you know, the sort of achlaut, ichlaut contrast, uh, the palatal velar, the, the, with words like Bach and uh, Chala, um, that they're very familiar. They're non-English, native English words, but they're loan words that are in such common usage that people immediately have reference points for those articulations. To the point where uh, Sarah Palin, was it Sarah Palin or the other one, uh, said chutzpah instead of chutzpah and was sort of dismissed uh, because of it, uh, because it was such a dumb error to make, uh, yes. because the word has come so firmly into English that it, and it brought its consonant with it. Right. Yes, I, I can't imagine people today calling Bach anything other than Bach. Uh, yeah. I, I 
can't imagine someone saying Bach. Um, I mean, you can make your velar plosive weakly Bach, Bach, Bach. There's an area where those two sounds kind of overlap. Uh, but everybody who says that, I imagine, says a little bit of friction there. Well, we may just be showing our educated elitism. elitism, yes. Maybe. So the symbols for these two guys, uh, in a way, the symbol for the unvoiced one is one of the most troublesome for my students because they really want to use it as it's used in English spelling, and that gets them confused. Uh, But the, the symbol, the X symbol, represents this single sound, H. And I suppose you could think of the voiced symbol as being a, a version of the same thing. Uh, it is essentially, though, a V that continues to hook below the line. So uh, either that or it's a Susan Komen ribbon with serifs at the top. Uh, and again, the X is H and the V with a loop below the line is Ra. Yeah, Ra, I feel like is not as common, not I, yeah, something I think you're that people right. are familiar with. Uh, and uh, again, I'm, I have a couple of notions about where that's used, but I might as well jump to Wikipedia and look at the occurrence. Oh my goodness gracious, that is a couple of screens worth of languages many of which I do not recognize, but Arabic, Basque, Catalan, Dutch, Gujarati, Greek, Icelandic, Irish, Japanese, and where's the one that I'm looking for here? Oh, that's interesting. Because I would have thought that it was used in Spanish uh, in something like agua. Uh, But it's not listed on this sheet. Uh, Maybe I'm making a mistake there. So, yeah, it's definitely used in a lot of languages. uh, And so is the unvoiced form as well. Have we covered that pretty well? I think we have. So let's let's move on into, you know, an area of the mouth that's sometimes a little sensitive for people. I, I often feel like when I deal with uvular things, we get people freaking out about their gag mm. reflex. Yeah, yeah, that's... I, I've certainly had this experience with students who are as soon as we got back to this territory, they really did feel like that was intruding on the area that was their voice, that they were going to harm their voice by making any nasty sounds back there. And that, even beyond adding to one's articulatory uh, bag of tricks, just being able to isolate strong action at the back of the vocal tract but not involving the larynx is a really useful thing for people to be able to do. It, it helps them to let go of carried residual tension, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, but you know the people. Some people do have very sensitive triggers to gag reflex, and uh, I certainly know people who whose response to addressing that area of their mouth, their response is almost like a, a post-traumatic stress disorder kind of trauma response. Yeah. That if you ask them to deal with that, you, you're going to get kind of panic attack responses. I have students who have similar reactions just in anatomy class, talking about the larynx or, or touching the front of their necks. It's a very charged area. Yeah, very sensitive. I mean, we are, I think, prone to defensiveness around our throats and necks because of, you know, the possibility of being choked. Yeah. And God forbid that we had a student who has been traumatized in some way around their mouth or throat or, or neck. Um, that can elicit very strong ref ref yeah. reflexes. Um, similarly, people who have, you know, done self-destructive behaviors like uh, bulimia, where they're causing themselves to be sick, they may have be hypersensitive in those areas, or hyposensitive that they have very little sensitivity in the back, um, and so they're they're not really aware of what's going on back there because they've lost yeah. awareness back there. So there there is a you know a, a degree of um, sensitivity training of uh, as a teacher of being responsive and respectful, not necessarily pushing. But encouraging and uh, saying, well, what is it about yourself that you can't look at? Is there a way to find your, uh, a way of exploring those feelings, those sensations without going into a state of panic? And on the positive side, I, I think that students who do address letting go of held responses of panic, uh, you know, defensive postures of that part of the body uh, are going to gain a great deal uh, that it, it I'll go so far as to say that releasing guarded behavior in that part of the body is part of the project of developing a voice for performance uh, obviously uh, we're not psychotherapists, and we should all be very, very cautious when dealing with these things. Uh, but I think on the positive side, people benefit from regaining some autonomy. Uh, I've had students, for example, I, I very often will move a student's larynx back and forth very gently with my hands. And, you know, that's a big responsibility, and it's potentially... Uh, alarming for a student uh, and so if it's at all alarming for a student the next step that I offer is that they move their own larynx back and forth and for some that's even itself too traumatic but I, I do think that it's about returning sort of autonomy I can touch this part of my, my body I can move this part of my body I can do explorations with my own vocal tract and make shapes I don't always have to make a shape that's associated with a certain emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. It's about isolation of effort. Okay, enough of that. Let's so the sound, the can you sound. make the sound, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. Are we moving back to uvular or have we already... Uvular, yes. So let's start with the voiceless uvular fricative. So, ha, ah, ha, ah. Maybe I'm adding a little 
extra constriction in the vowels, partially because I'm sort of like ramping up my effort a little bit. Mm. Uh, and I, I always try to relax that as much as possible. Uh, and then the voiced one, ah, 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 ah. I noticed something about the that uvular fricative. Is it sometimes people start a little bit, mm, either a, they start a little voiceless mm-hmm. uh, and become more voiced. So perhaps it's a little easier to do the unvoiced version of it. Um, and then the other thing is that it uh, it sort of drifts out of fricative and into approximate, which is something that the Wikipedia chart addresses. Yeah, it, it, it does this with a couple of the fricatives, and that's why I put the two rows together, I think. Or it. Whoever made this chart did this. And if you disagree, you can go to the talk section and make a comment on it. Uh, essentially, they've taken the voiced form of the uvular fricative and moved it to land in between the fricative row and the approximate row. And you could say this is because it's a phoneme in some very common languages. And because we can hear it in all in this language, in French, for example, uh, with a lot of allophonic variation, one of the very common variations is this more approximate version of it. Rouge. Rouge. Uh, let me see if I can do a range of really fricative. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to try an even scarier one. I'm going to try a trill, then a fricative, then an approximate. So, rot, 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 rot. Uh, I'll do it with French. Rouge, rouge. Too far. Rouge. <laughs> I need rouge, a, yeah. Rouge, 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 yeah, rouge. And I, I default to trill, rouge. And I suppose rouge. there could be allophonic variations towards less voiced, more voiced as well. So again, because it has this phonemic identity that encompasses all this variation, that's why I think we're responding to the notion that this sound isn't always a fricative. But if we're describing a symbol that describes a particular articulation, then it is always a fricative. <laughs> the symbol describes the fricative, and if we want to describe an approximate version of it, we should put a little thumbtack underneath it to, rec- to show that it's less closed. Right. More open, more approximate. Yeah. So the symbols for the voiceless uvular fricative is a chi, which sort of looks like a capital letter X. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that um, its mm, bottom two legs, if you will, I kind of imagine a capital X looking like a person with their legs a, a, a apart and their arms up in the air. Yes. Um, that the sort of the bottom V of it, if you will, is actually below the line. Yes. The cross part, where the two lines of the X cross, is on the bass line. Exactly, which is unusual. Yes. And it also has kind of a slightly curvy quality to the bar that goes from upper left yeah. to bottom right. 
Yeah, the, and the gentium font actually, I think, obscures that distinction a little bit by putting little serifs on this straight bar. There's the mm-hmm. curvy bar, which starts up left to down right, and then the straight bar that starts up right to down left. Yes. The symbol for the voiced uvular fricative is a turned backwards lowercase or small cap, not lowercase, small capital letter R. So, it, so it's not really turned, but flipped. Yes, so it's flipped. So if you let it fall over towards you. Um, so it's still, the the round part still points to the right, and the straight line of it is still on the left, but it's pointing down. So you could think of it in two ways. You could write a lowercase b and take a vertical stroke up to the right from the top of the bell of the B, the bowl of the B, mm-hmm. or you could think of making a small capital letter K, and when you went to make the second stroke of the arms that are reaching off the vertical, you would loop around as if you were making a lowercase b. So you have two ways of doing it. Start with a B and add a vertical stroke, or start to make a K and loop the bottom leg around to make a B-like shape. And, and it, unlike its unvoiced component, is neither an ascender or a descender. It sits on the line and only reaches up to the halfway point. Right, because it's a small cap R. Yeah. Uh, is flipped the actual term? I wonder if I have the Pullum book at hand. Um, I, I can tell you. Hang on. It's an inverted, inverted. is the term that Pullum uses. Inverted. Uh, which is different than turned, because there's no rotation right. involved. It's a reflection. Yes, great. That's a great way of putting it. Terrific. So let's move back into the pharyngeal region. And I have to say that what's cool about the Wikipedia version of the chart is that it has sort of isolated uh, this little tendril of sounds in a sea of gray. It makes it much clearer that there are only some sounds that are made in this radical and laryngeal part of the chart. Radical, that's because it has strong political bases. Exactly, exactly. It? it's because it's uh, formed with radishes. Oh, right. uh, Radishes are, of course, roots. Yes, exactly. Right? So the radix is the root of the tongue, so the back, back, back part of the tongue. Exactly. I, I think it's a great word to break apart like that, because radical does mean at the root, and radishes are root vegetables, and uh, well, I guess the other, I guess the German form is wheel, so there is a different version of rad, and there's nothing wheelie about this of these sounds. They're simply the root of your tongue, and in the case of pharyngeal, your your pharynx is the bit that's not your mouth. It's not your oral cavity, but it's the bit behind that. Right. So we're aiming sort of for the back wall of the mouth slash throat. So they're radicopharyngeal, I guess. The, there's a retraction of the root of the tongue. And I do find that that's useful for students who are barely piecing together how to make a uvular sound, and they can't really hear much distinction between a pharyngeal and a uvular sound, but they can definitely feel the difference in direction of articulation from raising the tongue up towards the uvula or pulling it back towards the back wall of the pharynx. Right, so will you model for us? Yeah. Ha, ah, ha, 
ah, or voiced ha, ah, ha, ah. Right. And this reminds me of the hakalugi sound. Yes. Right. You're about to spit off your your grandmother's balcony on the twenty first floor. You're going to make that sound. My wife just told me recently that there is a Swedish verb for to clear phlegm, and it's something like hekel. Or it's, I'm sure Eric Singer will tell us. Uh, and uh, she said, there's no uh, corresponding word in English. And I said, no, there's hawk to hawk a yes. So, And in other dialects, hork. It, yes, exactly. So uh, I think there, maybe we stole it from Swedish. That's probably what my wife would continue. I would think. So <laughs> those Swedes, they need to spit a lot. Uh, yeah, you know, it's all that. In the cold s- weather. <laughs> so... The first symbol, the unvoiced symbol, is sort of like an H with a bar across its top, yeah? Or not at the very top, uh, just intersecting the ascending line. Yes. And the the voiced form, I, I, I guess I can... We've Have we done an episode on glottal plosives? I don't know that we have. I think we've mentioned them before, so I won't go too deeply into them. Just that this symbol looks an awful lot like that, only it's facing backwards. So it's kind of like a question mark with a serifed flat bottom, but with the hook curving to the right. Is that a clear description? Opening to the right. Yes. Hooking to the left. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If I was to draw it, I would start at 2 o'clock, loop counterclockwise, and around and down. And, it uh, always looks like an ear to me. Yeah, I see that. I see that. An ear with a flat earring on the bottom. Yes, it's a left ear. <laughs> Wait a minute. If you're looking at someone from the front, right? It's uh, their I left see. Ear. I was looking at it sideways. So we're looking at the person's face straight on. And straight on. Looking off to the... It's their left ear. Okay. Yes, whereas the glottal one is on the right side. Of the chart, and it's the right ear. You know, every time we record this show, I learn some amazing new thing from you. So I I really appreciate that. So on this chart, that voiced pharyngeal fricative has been sort of lowered halfway into the approximant zone. And that's similar to what happened with the uvular fricative. Hmm. And, you know, that that makes some sense. Uh, that that in the languages where it occurs, and I'm now looking them up, uh, pharyngeal fricative, pharyngeal approximant uh, occurs in Hebrew. So in the word holam, there's more, uh, it's not so fricative, it's more approximate. Uh, however, the Wikipedia page he calls it, yeah, it, it does call it a fricative, but it links to it from an approximate. <laughs> That's a little uh, indirect. So on the Wikipedia page, pharyngeal consonant, there is this symbol, and it's described as a pharyngeal approximate. You click the link, and it takes you to the page, voiced pharyngeal fricative. So the <laughs> Wikipedia... Circuitous uh, root. It, pardon? A circuitous it root. It is, in fact. 
but it, it indicates a very similar confusion or dissonance, I guess is a better way to put it, between the description of the symbol and an awareness of how it might be used in language. That the pharyngeal fricative, the voiced pharyngeal fricative, which should be aha, sorry, aha, aha, is probably realized in most languages in a much less frictiony way, more like an approximant, and so maybe it's kind of an approximant. And yeah. we or the IPA can't make up their minds. Right. I suppose. And probably phonemically, it's going to be in an allophonic variation with the approximant and the fricative. So, so probably some variability. I would say at this point, when I'm working with my students on these sounds, uh, they, they are, if I didn't head them off the pass, they would ask this question. Why the hell am I learning this sound, which I'm never going to use ever in a play? Phil, why am I learning this sound? I don't understand. Why would I? I'm never going to do this in a play. I'm so glad that you're mocking my students because they might actually listen to this and uh, I would never mock them. That's just my normal voice. I, I talk like that every day. I'm sorry. Man. So, so yes. Yeah, so should we get one of these students... Uh, how would how would you respond to the question, why are we learning all these weird ones that are in weird like Because I said so. That's a very... Shut up and do your work. <laughs> no, I would say I really am, am moved by your honesty about that. <laughs> and thank you for sharing. Um, but um, your grade depends on you doing what my whims are. And... <laughs> Uh, I'm a very selfish teacher. Yes. And um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, that you would probably learn something by doing something outside of your comfort zone. And that by making a sound that you don't think you're going to use, first of all, you're be capable of making a noise at a party that someone someone else can't do, which <laughs> always is good for a free drink. And uh, But the other thing is that I have coached so many actors on film and television to speak languages that they don't speak um, and their ability to make a sound that uh, other actors can't do is going to get them work. So uh, suck it up and uh, let's have some fun. I, I think those are all of them very good answers and I have one more to add to the list. The process of exploration of making these sounds is going to give you more awareness and more ability to isolate the muscles of articulation. And you'll be better at speaking the sounds you do make based on your ability to isolate your muscular activity for this sound. Yes, I, I quote you regularly as saying something along the lines of, if you can't make it, you can't hear it. And so uh, you're, you're, it'll aid your ability in differentiating one sound from another. And that sensitivity even in an area that's very rarely going to come up, just sort of means that your ears are a little bit more finely tuned. And we see this on a regular basis with our students. Some penny drops about the difference in articulation, and suddenly they can make the distinction. They hear it. They, they've got their fingers around it. Yeah. So, pharyngeal... Uh, the step back from there, the next... Uh, radico something sound on the ordinary chart is there isn't another one uh, 
And on this chart, we've got an epiglottal. So on the uh, official IPA chart, epiglottal is actually in the of other symbols area. Exactly. And why do they have an other symbols area? It's because there's an illusion being painted by the beautiful symmetry of placement and uh, manner. Uh, and sometimes there are other things involved that aren't described in those two axes uh, that, that make a sound different. And so some sounds are are made in a way that isn't well described by the chart as written, or there's really only one symbol or one sound, and why use an entire row and column just to deal with one sound? Right. and So it makes the chart smaller. Uh, apart from this last glottal column, uh, yeah. much of the chart is taken up, and I suppose the bilabial and labiodental, a lot of the chart is taken up with things done with the tongue, right? Yes. And epiglottal is, is an area sort of in between glottis and pharynx. I've always thought that because it was epiglottal that it was an area that doesn't sort of fit neatly into the oral tract bits. But I don't see why it doesn't fit. Um, you know, you're... Yeah, it seems... Well, here, I'm going to read straight off of Wikipedia here. It's... Place of articulation is epiglottal, which means it is articulated with the aryepiglottic folds against the epiglottis. So we're making a distinction here between pharyngeal, which is the root of the tongue moving back against the back wall of the pharynx, and a constriction of the area just above the larynx. Frankly, I don't know if the two things are completely separable. Yes. Uh, I, and to demonstrate that, I'm going to see if I can demonstrate the epiglottal fricative, the unvoiced epiglottal fricative. Ah-ha, ah-ha. And now the pharyngeal, ah-ha, ah Hmm, no. <laughs> pharyngeal, ah-ha, epiglottal, ah-ha. I'm trying to narrow from the sides in towards the center a little bit. Right. So your airy epiglottic folds sometimes called the false vocal folds, those are perhaps, I think, m most familiar to people in the sort of Louis Armstrong voice sound. Yeah. Right, we put that sound in there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 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 if you do that, kind of gets the sensation of constricting your epiglottic folds very rapidly for most people. So if you try to whisper as Louis Armstrong, ha, 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 you should be able to do it without using your tongue because your aryepiglottic folds and your epiglottis are beneath your tongue. So you could hang on to your tongue with your index fingers and your thumbs and get into that noise so that you're not yeah. using your tongue on your pharynx. And as a as a means of exploration, so that you avoid yeah. the uh, using your tongue and going into the pharyngeal area and getting lower down, closer to your glottis, um, which again is terrific for simply isolating effort f away from strong laryngeal or glottal constriction. Right. Uh, to be able to make that difference. 
between what's happening above the larynx, larynx and what's happening in the larynx is, uh, I think, very useful for actors in their vocal development. So, so, the voiced version of that, we have again on the chart listed as an epiglottal approximant, which I'm going to try to do with your handy trick of holding the tongue. Ah, 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 ah. Ah, ha, ah, ha. Yeah, does that sound about right? I think so. So, the difference between pharyngeal and epiglottal is one that is really worth explaining, taking people through, and maybe we can hear a difference. But I am, I am unlikely to put either of those on a quiz. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not confident enough in my ability to make that distinction, uh, I certainly am not confident in my students' ability to hear and make that distinction as comfortably as they make the difference between a f and a th. Right. Even though in terms of articulatory effort, there's kind of no difference in how distinct the two are. It's just familiarity, really. So we have one more sound on this chart, and... uh, this is the sound that Sorry, I, I'm going to interject. I'm going to interject yeah. because we need to do the symbols for the epiglottal. Ooh, yes. So the voiceless uh, epiglottal fricative is a small cap H, yeah. small capital H, and the voiced looks just like the pharyngeal, so that left ear with the flat bottom, but it's crossed. To me, this looks like a lowercase f, who's a hunchback, who's... <laughs> <laughs> He's got a little lean back with yeah, his... Yeah, it's like a hallucinating F. It's a trippy F. Yes, it's uh, uh, Salvador Dali doing <laughs> the letter F. So it, it's it got a little osteoporosis in the upper back of the I told I've never seen that before, and now I see it. So, again, thank you. The other thing it reminds me of is uh, those Egyptian staffs. Yes. Is that an ankh? No, but an ankh has a whole circle. Uh, it's closed. So it's an ankh that, I don't know, it's lazy or has a bite taken out of it. Uh, yes, an Egyptian crozier. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, um, I, have you ever seen those back massagers that you hook it over your shoulder and you pull down? It's shaped like one of those things. I don't think I have, in fact. Oh, Yes, and the, one final image, you've heard that expression to bend uh, swords into plowshares. Yes. That's what you end up with halfway through the process. Because <laughs> the, the bar, right, that's the, uh-huh. the, uh, the crossbar that protects your hand, the pommel yes. of your, your sword. And when you start to bend your sword into plowshares, you get this hook on the top of it. So... I'm on board. It's <laughs> and I, I bet my son, who is into D&D, could tell me the name of a sword that's shaped like that. Yes. Sort of sickle-like. Yeah, I like. It's a really loopy scimitar. Yes. Lots of visual metaphors here. Great. Okay, so the last column, glottal. So we're again moving through an, into another range. First we had labial sounds, then we had coronal sounds, then we had dorsal sounds, then we had radical sounds. And now we're doing laryngeal sounds, which are happening in the larynx. There's only one bit that you can really articulate with in the larynx, and that's the glottis. The glottis being 
the space in between your vocal folds. So how do you, how do you articulate other than vibrating your vocal folds? Well, I think that's probably a good place to start to say that we do articulate those babies all the time when we just make sound. Uh, the other thing that we could do is to build up pressure behind them and blow it out in a plosive to go ah, ah, ah. In this case, though, what we're talking about is making friction there. So, to do it exactly as described by the chart, I have to hold my vocal folds close enough together that they produce turbulence. And I have to be clear in my mind and in my heart that I'm not doing an uh, epiglottal, airy epiglottal constriction. I submit to you that that is not what we do when we do the H sound, and that is the symbol that we're being presented with here. So, so it's a bit of a lie, isn't it? I think it is a damned lie. Uh, and this is something that uh, uh, Dudley inveighs against with regularity. Uh, and I'll put in a plug, Dudley Knight's book is with the publisher and will be available soon. Uh, and he talks about this, uh, I think, at some length, that it doesn't really make sense to call an H a glottal fricative uh, because the business end of the friction is not occurring specifically there at the glottis. Where is it occurring, Phil? It is happening everywhere. and the But maybe not all at the same time. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially... We could take this entirely off the chart and say that some words in English start with an unvoiced vowel uh, or they're partially initially devoiced, these vowels. So if I say he or who or ha, the only distinction there is the distinction of the vowel shape. And there's no particular extra fricatizing happening with a, at a particular place in the vocal tract. Except that, because of the vowel, the vocal tract is shaped differently, and so you may feel that friction more in one place or another. And the Greeks surely had a way of dealing with this, that they didn't have a separate symbol for this phoneme. They had an aspiration mark that they would place on vowels. And Frankly, that would be a reasonable way of dealing with this. It's just that it's such a common phoneme, especially in English, that we want to think about it as having its own letter, mm -hmm. its own symbol. And the symbol for the unvoiced glottal fricative is an H. A lowercase h. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's why I end up using it under duress <laughs> in transcriptions. I just put it in there because it makes sense. But it, yes, I, I do think that, uh, that I'm just unhappy with this sort of glottal uh, column. I would rather say that the H belongs in the other symbols turf. Yeah. Um, now, there, there is a pair for this, something called the hooktop H, yeah. um, and how to have a voiced... A glottal sound that isn't just a vowel. Um, basically, it is a somewhat voiced 
H. So typically it's argued that uh, an H between two vowels is semi-voiced. So if we com compare something like head with a head, the H in between the uh and the eh is likely to be semi-voiced, a head, as opposed to head, where we're going to get fully voiceless H. Yeah, I, I, the, the existence of a voiced or semi-voiced glottal fricative really gives the lie to the notion of it being a glottal fricative, because where is the voice happening? At the glottis. So uh, it, it really is a different thing altogether. It is, it is a murmur-voiced vowel, or a breathy-voiced vowel. Uh, I also think, and, and I know that this practice is common, uh, and this symbol is actually used in, in Skinner's work, and perhaps in other places. The idea that I say, ahead, ahead, and I'm... It's just about how much air I'm putting through. And the, the amount of air that I put in that transition has to do with how much stress there is on the following symbol. Is there a difference between the way I say head and a head? Maybe. Uh, but it's not about voicing a, a consonant. To me, that just doesn't describe it very well. Well, I don't think you can attribute it to Skinner, because Skinner no. never used hooked up H, so... Um... I, I know I've seen it somewhere. And, and so... Uh, it, it's in some speech text that drama students use, so I'm going to have to hunt that down. Uh, but yeah, it to me, I can imagine in a place where I use the phoneme H, not using it very strongly, uh, I'm thinking of Mike Myers saying, behave, uh, sort of like sexy H in behave, is... Is the to me, that's more H than hooktop H, because the, what he's distorting is actually making it more breathy and less. But he's really voiced, making the vowel following it breath, breathy for longer. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. E, I'd be happy to get rid of. But there is a there is an acoustic difference between H initial H and intervocalic H. That's that is the argument, and there are apparently languages where the hooktop H is uh, more of a, uh, you know, a difference between words that you, you can have H between two syllables and hooktop H and it differentiates one word from another. It came up in a John Wells blog post this week, oh, I, I believe, when he was talking about his visit to Kiev. So the, the way that these two sounds are dealt with by Wikipedia uh, they're described on the fricative page as pseudo-fricatives, which I kind of like. Hmm. And uh, the unvoiced one is called a voiceless glottal transition. And the voiced one is called a breathy-voiced glottal transition. Uh, and it's described thusly. The breathy-voiced glottal transition, commonly called a voiced glottal fricative, is a type of sound used in some spoken languages which patterns like a fricative or approximate consonant phonologically, but often lacks the usual phonetic characteristics of a consonant. Hmm. Uh, in many languages, uh, the voiced version, the, the breathy-voiced glottal transition, has no place or manner of articulation. 
For this reason, it's been described as a breathy voice counterpart of the following vowel from a phonetic point of view. And that's pretty much what we've said. And uh, it may have real glottal constriction in a number of languages, such as Finnish. Uh, which means then that in that language there is some constriction happening in the glottis, uh, which I suppose would mean that there's real friction happening there. Uh, how that happens with voicing, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And, yes, and it does give in English uh, the word behind, uh, which is the example the sort of example that you're talking about, intervocalic age. Well, sir. We've made it through the fricatives. Looks like we made it. And uh, we didn't mention, although we mentioned in the R section, that some approximants can be sort of promoted up into fricative status, like r, the, uh, the Czech R, uh, the alveolar approximant with a little thumbtack underneath it, raising up to become a, a kind of fricative. Uh, but I can't think of any other examples of that off the top of my head. Okay, well, I think we need to talk about next week. I suspect that next week we'll be doing Price. I think that's right. I like Price. Price is nice. It's nice. It's fine as well. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, thank you so much for this. We've had a good time today, and I look forward to recording another episode with you soon. Um, if our listeners would like to be in touch with us, they could email us at glossonomia at gmail.com. And we also have a Facebook page. Uh, would, uh, the, it's a group called Glossonomia, and I just today posted something to it for the first time. So uh, thanks, Phil, and uh, talk to you in a week or so. Adios. Adios. <laughs>